Well, I'd like to begin by talking about my college days. Uh, that doesn't mean anything to you, but I'm just going to give you some context. Um, as a young man in college, I was caught between two worlds. On the one hand, I had my Christian friends in the college ministry in which I participated. And on the other hand, I was also a part of a fraternity in Greek life. And I don't know if you know this, I met my wife uh, in Greek life. Uh, I'll save that story. Oh, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) So thank you, person. Uh, I had one off. But I met my wife in Greek life. It's wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. Um, And I loved my fraternity friends, but I didn't necessarily like everything they did on the weekends. And I didn't agree with everything that the fraternity stood for. But I also love my ministry friends and some of the stuff we were doing in terms of connecting with God. But one of the things that really irked me um, was some of the ways we hung out and some of our parties with the Christian community were pretty ordinary. They were pretty uh, lame, some might put it. I mean, most of our Christian gatherings that I was connected to in college consisted of a late night Papa John's pizza Around 11.30 at night. Does anyone, you guys are aware of what Papa John's is, right? Better ingredients, better pizza Papa John's. And um, do you ever notice he does, Papa John does that little wince at the end when he does? He goes, better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. So it'd be a late night pizza, maybe a PG-13 movie that was appropriate for Christians. And then you would drink a couple extra glasses of Mountain Dew if you were really excited. And And my Greek friends... Loved me, but they never understood why I related to these Christians. They couldn't understand the deeper thing that was happening and why I would hang around these Christians. And uh, they, wouldn't quite, they couldn't quite catch the vision of happiness that I was experiencing with some of these people that follow Jesus. They couldn't reconcile how fun I was as a person, but like uh, how the Christian community would actually help them with their lives. Now, in my experience in college really isn't all that quite different than maybe some of your experiences, some of our experiences in this room. I think it's very odd that the Christian faith has become associated, in fact, with joyless gatherings or somber meetings, uh, because the founder of the Christian faith, Jesus, was a really big partier. Now, um, let me qualify that. Jesus' first miracle Uh, was performed at a wedding feast where he turned water into not lemon juice that made everyone's lips pucker. He didn't turn it into grape juice, as some of the fundamentalist Christians might say. For his first miracle, Jesus turned water into wine. And uh, now, if I ever have the opportunity to perform a miracle at some of your weddings, I'm going to turn your wedding cake into a mountain of street tacos because (laughs) because I'm all about that taco life. And so anyway, so what we see from the life of Jesus is that wherever he went, there was a party. All of his stories involved parties. In fact, one of his most famous stories is when uh, he talks about the prodigal son. The, the man in that story throws a party for his lost son when his lost son returns. Parties were so much of a part of Jesus's life that if you were looking for Jesus in a city All you needed to do was go find the biggest party in town because Jesus was probably there. People were sort of like, hey, Jesus is coming into town. You better call the In-N-Out truck guy uh, to come bring the In-N-Out burgers. Let's tap the cake. Let's get everything going. Let's hire a DJ. We're going to throw a party. In fact, partying and celebration was so big 
uh, in the Jewish law that the Jewish people at this time were commanded to party one week at a time, three times a year. And so over the last eight weeks, we've been doing a series called The Good Life. And we're trying to explore what Jesus meant when he said this in John 10.10. It says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What is the good life that Jesus came to bring? Uh, Today, I want to link together pairs of things that we mostly keep apart. What are those things? Well, there's God and happiness. There's the Christian faith and parties, and there's Jesus and joy. And everywhere we go, every restaurant we go to, every bar we show up to, they advertise happy hours. And if you've ever gone into a happy hour and you take a look at some of the people hanging out at the bar, it's not the happiest place in the world. Happy hours aren't the happiest place. How surprised would some of us be if churches started calling their church services happy hours? Hey, Pacific City Church, we've got a happy hour at 10 a.m. Also, check our website for listings of when we have other happy hours. You know, because why do I say that? Because why would I say something like that? Because the Christianity, uh, that, my friends, is way close to the truth. In Christianity, in terms of religion... Uh, when someone participates in religion, it actually makes them happier. So look at this. Look at this. Uh, Sonia, I'm going to get her name wrong, but Luya Bormersky is one of the best known happiness researchers in the world. And here's a quote from her about happiness. It says, I don't have a religious or spiritual bone in my body, but the studies clearly show that religious people are happier. Her advice is, if you're unhappy, by all means, practice religion. And so today, as we finish up our series on the good life, uh, I want to talk about one indispensable element to living the good life as God created it to live, uh, created us to live. And that is a life of celebration. And so today we're going to celebrate who God is and what he's doing. And then we're going to go out into the lobby and have a little celebrate. Well, it's not a lobby. It's a courtyard. We're going to go out to that courtyard and celebrate. So I'm going to pray and invite God's presence. And uh, will you join me in prayer? Uh, God, we love you and we want to celebrate with you. And so God, I ask that you would help me to speak as I should, that you would direct my words. And God, I ask that you would bring joy into this room, that we would experience, uh, your joy, uh, and, uh, everything that we are called to celebrate. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. So if you have a Bible, I would ask you to turn to it to Matthew 21. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you have maybe something on your phone, you can do that. Uh, and then, or you can follow along on these screens here. And also, we, I think we have some Bibles somewhere around here. So anyway, in Matthew 21, verse 1, it reads this. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter uh, Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and a colt and the foal of the donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and the place their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Verse 8, a very large crowd sped, spread their cloaks on the ground while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David went ahead of him and those that followed. Oh, yeah. Uh, And they said, Hosanna, son, uh, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Uh, When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth in Galilee. Now, the triumphal entry uh, in Jerusalem is a paradigm. In fact, it's a model uh, for um, for for how I think Christians should celebrate in their lives. Uh, Why should we celebrate? Well, because we get to partner with God in the most awesome way ever. Now, here's what we read again in verse two and three. It says, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and they, and he will send them right away. Here is a colt. Here is a young donkey that Jesus borrows. And I want to say what a strange thing it is uh, that you've got Jesus, the God of the universe, who reveals, who's revealed in Christ, the person of Christ, who owns absolutely everything in the world, but actually borrows everything when he's a person on earth. Nothing he has is his own. Don't you find it striking that in all the stories of Jesus, Jesus is constantly borrowing something. When Jesus performs his first miracle, uh, or one of his big miracles of multiplying food, Uh, He takes five loaves and two fishes, and he multiplies it into feeding 5,000 people. Uh, When he does that, he actually borrows those loaves and fishes from a little kid. Uh, And then we read, before that, he borrowed a boat. And then in this situation, he borrows a donkey. And then a few days later, his dead body would be placed in a borrowed tomb. He, like the creator and owner of everything, possesses nothing and borrows everything. Think with me. Why would he do that? Why would God work in this way? How does God do whatever God does here on earth and in the world? How does he do it? If God is going to heal someone, if God is, if we're going to feed someone or save someone, how does God normally do it in the world? When God wants to do something in the world, he almost always invites a human being into partnership with himself in order to fulfill his purposes in our lives and in the world. And he invites us to pray and so that our desires can be joined with his desires so that he can accomplish what he wants in the world. And the fact is, there is a great deal that God will not do both in your life and the lives of the people around you and in your world, unless you and I pray and unless you and I join up and become obedient to him and what he's calling us to do. And you see, it would be much easier for God to do whatever he does apart from us, um, without us, away from us. And yet he chooses to work with us in order to partner with us to do what he wants to in the world. Friend, are you taking responsibility to pray seriously? Have you ever said to yourself, if this good thing that I want to see happen in my life or in a family member's life or in a co-worker's life, if this good thing is going to happen, then I had better pray about it. I had better go to God and say, God, I invite you to do your thing. This is why we work so hard at Pacific City Church to teach people how to learn to discern and recognize God's voice 
through listening prayer. Our favorite, Eric Amos. Please put your hands together for Eric Amos. Yeah, our favorite, Eric Amos, leads a team of people to teach us how to discern and recognize God's voice. When you go out into the world, people don't talk about hearing God's voice. When you say, oh, you're hearing voices, we need to put you in the hospital. So we need to understand what that actually means. When we say, what is God's voice? What does it sound like? Is it our own voice? Is it our own voice? Is it the tacos we ate that are giving us an impression that God's leading us to do something? Or is God actually speaking to our hearts and to our minds and through a Christian community and through the Bible? What is he doing? How is he speaking? And when we learn to discern and recognize God's voice, we are better able to join up with what he's doing in the world. We can recognize certain things in the certain situations with people and we can join up and we become more effective and we see more of God doing more of what he does, which is bringing healing and wholeness to our world. What could be a greater purpose for our lives than getting to partner with the almighty God, the creator of the universe in accomplishing his work for the world? Well, this is why Pacific City Church, this is why we say uh, we, we have one of our values. It actually reads like this. It says, we value joining God in his work to bring, to bring the renewal to the whole world. And I believe, and the Pac City believes, that we're actually called to demonstrate God's love for the world, Christ's love for the world. We're supposed to disciple the nations. We're supposed to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked. We're supposed to help heal the broken. And we're even supposed to rescue the oppressed. And friend, you cannot go very far in the Christian life unless you grasp the mystery that God has chosen to partner with us in accomplishing his good work in the world. This is why Pacific City Church not only teaches people how to pray, this is why we work with local homeless shelters. This is the reason why we invest in our neighborhoods and the people in our neighborhoods and we invest in our local schools. This is why the Pac City leadership serves and mentors individuals in the congregation and outside of the congregation. This is why the reason why we equip others to know how to pray. As I mentioned, this is what, the reason why we equip others to care about social issues in our city. Uh, the reason we serve homeless families who are in transition, who are out on their luck and need a place to say, this is why we work with them. The reason we are creating this church and everything else that we do is because we believe that God has chosen us to work through us. God's activities are supposed to go through the local church, through me and through you to do the good things that God wants to do in the world that are important to him. And if you can't celebrate being used by God to bring a little, a little bit of his love and his justice, if you can't celebrate that God is going to use you to bring a little bit of his healing to the world, then nothing is ever going to cause you to celebrate. Nothing will make you excited. You know, also, now, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, if you consider yourself a Christian and you're not experiencing the joy that is supposed to come along with uh, participating with what God is doing. Uh, perhaps that has something to do with you not participating in what he's doing. I mean, I, I mean, I hate to say that, but I mean, so many times we think the problem is with God. That he has like, he has a rotary phone and he's an old person because he's like before there and his phone's broken. And we feel distant 
from him and we say, hey, he's not really speaking to me right now. Or we say something like, I'm just not really feeling him right now. And sometimes we have these feelings, you know, that are legitimate because we're in a time of testing. And we've all been in a time of testing where it feels like we can't hear God's voice and recognize what he's doing in us and in the world. I, I know what that feeling is life. It can feel difficult. And there's times when God is, it feels like God is not there. He's actually there, but we, and he's doing something to test our faith, to make us stronger so that we can rely on him in a specific area of our lives. I get that. However, and this is most of the time, the other times when we feel distant from God or we simply, it's simply because we've chosen to disregard what he says. Or we've chosen to disregard what we see him doing in the world. And where we say things like, we're just not going to listen to him in this particular area of our lives. And this could be anything. This could be something with a particularly toxic relationship. It could be something that God is saying to us about our money and how we think about our money and how we spend our money and how we give our money away. It might be withholding help from somebody. It might have something to do with choosing to not use the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God has given us because we feel like they belong to us. And I have found that when a Christian withholds from obeying God or delays like listening to God or pretends like what God is saying is unclear and I need to continue to pray about it and it's fuzzy and we use any number of excuses or tactics to delay having to make a decision, or we try to shelve the discussion until like our lives settle down for a little bit and because we're so busy right now, or all the things we do that we make up to avoid joining up with God in obedience to what he wants us to do in the world. I find that whenever we try to do this, when we delay a decision, when we put a decision in decision purgatory, we're not really saying no to God, but we're not really saying yes, because if we say yes, it would be very difficult when we do that. That all that stuff that often has an adverse effect on our ability to experience the joy that God wants us to have. There's something where we're like, oh, God's talking to me. He wants me to join up when I don't join up. It really does affect us, our ability to celebrate and experience joy. And if you are not experiencing joy and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you need to ask yourself, is it because you've chosen directly or indirectly to ignore the clear ways God is calling you and, or you or your spouse or in a, in a relationship or whoever it is. If, God, if you're ignoring that, what God is saying, that can severely have an impact on your ability to experience joy. Does that make sense? Okay, well, next step. Uh, why else should we celebrate? Well, we not only get to celebrate because we get to do the most awesome work ever. We get to celebrate because we get to have our prayers answered in the most awesome way ever. Uh, we read, we go back to Matthew 21. It says this uh, in verse six, it says the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on a very large crowd, spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's the end of it. Um, we see that the crowds, I just read it really poorly there. And I, I you know, I, I recognize that. So anyway, we'll cut this out of the sermon on when we put online. Um, we see that the crowds that were here, they hailed Jesus as the son of David. And then we see in verse nine, it says this, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. What in the world is actually happening here? I mean, I, this probably doesn't make any sense to a, a normal American. Um, 
The people, I'll explain it. The people are saying that they believe in Jesus, that he is the great conquering Messiah. What does that mean? They threw palm branches in front of him as he walked or as he rode on the donkey in the same way their ancestors threw branches before Judah Maccabee, uh, an ancient Jewish general who defeated the Greek occupiers a few centuries earlier. So they're calling back something from their history here. And you see, like the waving of uh, palm branches in Jesus' day, this wasn't just something super cute. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to church the week before Easter. It's called Palm Sunday. Um, And in Palm Sunday, they often have kids come up and they wave palm branches. Has anyone ever seen? Has anyone ever seen a kid wave a palm branch? And it looks a lot like this. And it looks like uh, you're on It's a Small World at Disneyland. And these kids are, like, so petrified. And so, like, we get this impression. Why are we sending these kids up to do this, this uh, you know, this weird thing with the palm branches? Um, what's really going on here is that this was a revolutionary act. When these people were waving palm branches on this day in front of Jesus, when they did this, it was like waving a Palestinian flag. Uh, or in Israel, it's like waving a Kurdish flag. In Turkey, waving a palm branch was saying, very soon, our little government, we are going to throw off our Roman oppressors. They are looking to Jesus. They're excited for Jesus. Jesus is going to lead a revolt against these terrible Romans who occupy our land. They're saying, Hosanna, Jesus, Messiah, save us. We're calling back all the traditions. You're going to do something awesome here. So what did they get? So what actually happened after this happened? Well, if you don't know the story, let me tell you. A few days later, Jesus, the Messianic king, he was arrested. He was humiliated. He was beaten up. They punched him with like real fists. They beat him up. And this Jesus, who they called the son of David, their last best hope, Rome decides to take him and make an example out of him. And they hung him up on a Roman torture device known as a cross, and they killed him. Why do I share this? Why would I share something like this? Well, friend, have you ever prayed and prayed and prayed for something to happen, and you've gotten the exact opposite answer that you were expecting? Have you ever thought to yourself, what's the point in praying Because instead of my dreams being realized, the exact opposite of happening is happening. I am experiencing my worst nightmare. Everything I feared that would come true is actually coming true. And I think what we're seeing here in this story is the mismatch of our ways and between our ways and God's ways. And the mismatch is often that we ask God for and what God actually delivers on. We pray, save us, Lord. Do this particular thing. Help us to find a spouse. Help me heal my marriage. Help heal a loved one's condition. Grant us a job. Help me to get into grad school. And the absolute opposite thing happens. The marriage gets worse. You remain single. You don't. You get the rejection letter. The person you've been praying for to get healed ends up in the hospital and the condition is worse. But you see, that is not the end of the story. 
God actually did hear the prayers of these people waving these palm branches. He actually heard them. But what he was doing went so far beyond what they knew was going on at the time or what they understood was actually happening. God had something so much bigger in mind, so much greater than saving some little Middle Eastern country from their national enemy. What all, because here's what he understood. What ultimately oppressed the Jewish people is the same thing that ultimately oppresses us. It is not the government. What ultimately oppresses us is sin. It is sin. And Jesus came to not just free people from their little national enemy, but he came to free us from the oppression of sin. And what ultimately oppresses us is sin. It is the sins that we commit, and it is also the sins that have been committed against us and our family and our friends and our society. It's because of sin that we experience alienation with God. It's because of sin that we experience broken relationships. It's because of sin that we find ourselves addicted and in bondage to powers that are too big for ourselves to handle. It's because of sin that we find ourselves addicted to drugs and alcohol and certain sexual practices and addicted to food and addicted to work. As sin keeps us from being able to express love to one another, sin breaks down Our psyche, it hurts us psychologically. Sin breaks down our families. Sin breaks down our emotional life. Sin keeps us from being able to forgive other people. And it often gives us, uh, keeps us from being able to receive forgiveness from other people and from God. And God sent Jesus into the world to answer the prayer, God save us. But he answered the prayer in a way that was so much better than people had ever imagined. You know, in the Bible, in Ephesians, uh, it was written by the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 3, we read this. It says, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to his power that is in work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Friend. Are you in a situation where you have been praying and praying and praying and you feel like you're getting the exact opposite of what you've been praying for? I would like for you to consider today that God may be wanting to do something. He may be wanting to grant you something that is immeasurably better than anything you could have asked or imagined. And the, re- and the people are crying out, they're saying, God save us, could not imagine that Jesus was truly going to save them in that way because it went so far beyond their understanding and what they were seeking. The good life for you and the good life for me is based on the simple truth that God is good and his purposes for our lives are good. And whenever we're in a situation, Whenever we're, maybe in some of you are in this situation today, you would say, you know, it doesn't seem like God seems to be answering my prayers. I wonder if God cares about me. I wonder if God cares about my family. I'm experiencing the absolute opposite of what I thought I should experience. All the things I feared are actually happening. I'd like you to remember this truth in your heart. God hears our prayers and he has something in store for you And for me, that's often greater than what we presently know or understand. Amen? All right. Well, I'd like to transition here a little bit. Why I want to widen the scope and say, why why should we celebrate? 
Why? Well, the reason why we celebrate is because we get to, uh, we're happy. We're rejoicing. But like, why do we rejoice? Like, why should we rejoice? Well, let me ask you a question. If there was a single word that you could use to describe the Christian faith, if a single what word, single word comes to mind that you would say, you know what, this really describes the Christian faith, what would it be? Um, some of you might say grace. Uh, you know, what comes to mind is the word grace, God's unmerited favor and gift to us. Um, you know, it's utterly undeserving and he shows graces. And that's great. That's wonderful. In the New Testament which is the second half of the Bible that was written after Jesus was born. In the New Testament, the word grace appears 121 times in the New Testament. Christianity is a religion of grace. Uh, maybe you wouldn't say grace. Maybe some of you would say God is a God of love. After all, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who shall ever believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the word love is a great answer. Um, to describe the Christian faith. After all, it appears in the New Testament 317 times. But how many of you, if you were asked to have a word that would singly describe the Christian faith as it is expressed in the New Testament, how many of you would say the word joy? Did you know there are 326 occurrences of the word joy in the New Testament? And the word joy is found in more in the New Testament than the word love. And it's found more than the word grace. And if there is one characteristic that should be in the Christian faith or should at least as it is described in the Bible, it is the word joy. And one scholar who spent his whole life studying the New Testament and studying ancient literature says the New Testament is the most buoyant, the most exhilarating and joyful book in the world. There's joy at the beginning of the story of Jesus's life. There's joy at the end of Jesus's life. There's joy when he is born and there's a group of angels that are around him. There's joy. Uh, it talks about great joy. There's joy after he dies and comes back to life and, he's re- and he ascends into heaven. Uh, we, re- we read that the disciples were filled with great joy. Every single New Testament writer, half of the Bible, half of the Bible, every single one of them, Joy is talked about because joy marks the inbreaking of God's kingdom in this world. Joy ranks second only after love as an important thing uh, in the Bible. So why do we rejoice? Well, basically the Bible speaks about two types of joy. There's joy because of and there's joy in spite of. And I want to talk to you first about joy because of. In the Bible, we read that joy is a natural human reaction when good things happen. Joy because of weddings. Joy at seeing an old friend that you haven't seen for a while. The joy at the good choices your children make. Uh, The joy at even having a child. Or the joy of the beauty of creation, tasting good food, listening to music, experiencing love, etc. And of course, the Bible, in the Bible, people discover the greatest joy when they experience God. And when a Christian thinks about all that God is and all that God has done, we rejoice. It's what we do. We rejoice that God is our heavenly father and that he forgives sins. We rejoice because God sent his son into the world to save us all. And for anyone who's willing to trust in Christ, we rejoice because 
God, not, Christ not only died, but he rose again. He rose from the dead. He's the only human being to ever do that. We rejoice because Christ ascended into heaven and he sits with God now. And we rejoice because he's not absent from this world. He's not absent from us and our circumstances. But he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can renew everything and we can participate and we can know that he's with us. And we rejoice because we believe as Christians that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And he's going to destroy death. And he's going to heal every illness. He's going to bring justice and judgment. And he's going to change the disintegrating and the decaying bodies that we have. So we receive a resurrected body. We rejoice because one day we will be reunited with people that we have lost in this earth as they are in connected to Christ. And the reason why Christians rejoiced is because they believed the gospel. The gospel, if you don't know what that means, that simply means good news. And have you ever heard good news that didn't make you happy? Hey, good news. It's not cancer. Good news. Your favorite team won the sports match. Good news. You got the role. Good news. You got the promotion. Good news. The person you're madly in love with is also madly in love with you. Good news. After finally trying and trying and trying, you're pregnant. And the best news of all, God doesn't leave this planet to fend for him for for itself. But he entered into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life and showing us how life could be best lived to experience the good life. He died a sacrificial death, a death that we could not do to deal with our sin. And the good news is that Christ is risen. We believe a dead guy came back to life. That's supposed to be good news because if we align ourselves with him, there's power there. And that God's new world that we're building is perfect. He's breaking into this world. People in the Bible rejoice because of the good things that God was doing in them and through them. Now that's joy because of. Now, I want to talk to you for just a second uh, about joy in spite of. Joy in spite of. Now, for those of you who have read the New Testament, again, second half of the Bible, have you ever noticed that joy shows up in the most unusual places? In the book of Acts, we read uh, from the Apostle Paul. Uh, He's talking, uh, we, we read about him and his buddy Silas. They're going around to different cities, and they're often arrested on trumped-up charges. And if anyone has suffered injustice at the hands of a so-called justice system, it's Paul and Silas. You read these stories, they're often beaten, and they're thrown in prison, and their feet are put in stocks. And in one particular story, all this stuff that I just mentioned actually happened. And in the middle of the night, what do we find Paul and Silas actually doing? They're not complaining about their unfair treatment. They're not complaining, licking their wounds, pitying themselves, like saying, woe is me. Paul, um, at midnight, you find them worshiping the Lord and singing songs and rejoicing. Paul wrote this pretty much the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, most all of it. Most of his letters we read all the time. And the word joy appears dozens and dozens of times. By the author Paul. And what's weird about the whole thing is that while Paul is writing about joy, writing letters to other Christians around the Mediterranean, most of his letters were written from where? They were written from a prison cell. 
So what is going on here? How does a dude wrongfully accused of crimes end up in prison? Who, how does he stay joyful? Why is he joyful? Paul often described his life as sour, sour, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Have you ever felt this way? You're going through a very difficult time. It's a hard time. Your heart is aching, yet despite all of your circumstances, your joy is not stolen. Have you experienced that? Have you felt that way? Paul was with people that hated him. And he was, he was weighed down by their demands and their abuse. Yet each time he rose above it, he rose above the power of evil. He had an unquenchable joy, a joy that could not be stolen. Why? Why is joy greater than grief? How can we have joy in spite of everything? Well, the reason why we can have joy in spite of everything, is because the cross that Jesus died on is not the last word. The last word is not crucifixion, it's resurrection. And even the darkness, no matter how dark it is, couldn't hold Jesus back. Even though he had died, it could not hold him back. And we couldn't hold back people experiencing him and a life that's available to us in Jesus. And you know, so many folks... So many people I talk to who consider, who are considering becoming followers of Christ or, uh, or, or being Christ in a difficult area in their lives, they think it is impossible to follow Jesus and to experience happiness. We think that we often have, we create this weird dichotomy between like, we think that we have to choose between our personal happiness and obeying God. And there's no greater lie that's ever been told than this. There's, you never have to choose between your happiness and obeying God. The truth is your happiness and my happiness. It is ultimately tied to us experiencing an intimate relationship with God. And I can honestly say that after 20 years of trying to faithfully follow God, uh, when I really, truly allowed Jesus to come into my life, that's when I found happiness. There were things before this in my life that made me happy, hanging out with my friends, eating a mountain of tacos, getting A's on tests, enjoying parties and such. But it wasn't until I truly allowed Christ to become the leader of my life. Well, sometimes you've maybe you've heard the word Lord, the Lord of my life. That's what that means. He becomes the leader of my life. I'm no longer really in charge of my life. But God, I yield to your leadership in my life. And when I did that, I, 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 can, I experienced joy in my life that I never experienced before. Joy in spite of my circumstances. Joy in spite of what was happening to me. And my wife and I, we have experienced pain throughout the years. We've experienced loss, like really painful loss. But our joy was never lost. And I experienced joy even when the darkness closes in even when things don't make sense, even when relationships are not quite working, or even when job stuff isn't quite there, or when people do things that hurt me, I still can experience joy because I am connected to Christ in an intimate relationship. And that's the good life. That is the good life that God created me and you to have. Now, here's the deal. Um, There's a lot of sad happy hours out there. And there's a lot of miserable people on prescription drugs, just hanging around, 
trying to make their life a little bit better. And there's a lot of people chasing after things that they think will make them happy. Uh, Romance, uh, more money, more power and influence. When we allow Christ to rule our lives, I'm I'm talking to people in this room, I'm talking to Pacific City Church. When we allow Christ to rule our lives, we're not saying that we will never have problems in the future. We will. Like, that's true. Like, there's this one Bible verse, or it's this one thing that Jesus said. It's a quote. He said, in this life, you will have trouble. And if there's one verse you can absolutely cling to, is in this life, you will have trouble. We're not saying that here. But if our world, our friends, our neighbors, our families, our coworkers, the other parents at our child's school, uh, if they can see that God is doing something in us, and the something that we couldn't do for ourselves, if they can see that God is giving us his supernatural joy because of what he has done, even when life isn't working out for us in a particular way, that, my friends, that is a powerful way to live our lives. Our lives can become proof of God's power and God's presence. Now, don't raise your hand. How many of you have friends or coworkers or family members that you would say, you know, I desire, I really want to share my life with Jesus with them. And how many of you would say you have a family member or someone that you know in your life, they really need to experience the inbreaking of Jesus in their lives? Well, let me tell you, if you let, you don't even have to do anything fancy. You don't have to go to fancy Bible school. If you simply live the life of joy that God intended, that is a great way to do it. We have a unique opportunity to let the, the, let the joy of God work into our lives and through our lives. And when we do this, when the joy of God is in our lives, it really makes a difference. It changes how we live. It changes how we work. It changes how we deal with extraordinarily difficult people in our lives because our lives become the evidence of God through our joy. Now, I believe Christians are called to celebrate. We're supposed to have joy in what we do. Jesus uh, calls us to live the party uh, that he lived um, in a lot of ways. And I'm not talking about some lame party where you have to go network and talk about what you do and swirl a glass of average whatever and and make little chit-chat or subtly brag about this or that and the other, about your latest win in life. I'm talking about... I'm not talking about bad parties. I'm tired of going to bad parties. And specifically, Christians need to start throwing better parties. That is a fact. That is a truth. That is a truth. That is a truth. I'm not drinking any more Mountain Dew. I'm fat enough as it is. Okay, so I am not doing it. I'm not doing it. Christians need to throw better parties. We need to get away from the saccharine idea of like, here's what a party should be. And like, oh, have another piece of pizza. We need to throw better parties. I'm talking, but here's what I'm talking about. I, I get that. Like, let's throw better parties. Like, as a, as a church, let's just decide. And let's be honest with each other when someone goes, oh, we should do a thing that's uh, awful. And you've got to say to that person, hey, maybe that's not a great idea. Can I help you with a better idea? Um, we want to throw better parties. Like, actually physical better parties. And that's one of our plans for this spring. I've been working with a few people. We're going to throw a lot of parties this, this spring. And so, um, and it's not just for us. And that's just a party for us. That's boring, too. We want to throw parties where it's like for everyone, for the community. Uh, a party where like your friends that aren't involved in this church might show up and, then, and you don't have to feel like, oh, if they show up to this party, is Chris going to get up and 
do this and say, well, you know, now that you're here and you've had a couple drinks, let me talk to you about what it means to have a personal relationship. (laughs) We call that a bait and switch. We're not interested in that either. What's it look like just to throw good parties? Why do we want to throw good parties? Because God throws good parties, man. And we want to throw good parties because we wanted the common good of the city and our neighborhood to flourish. So, like, figure out how to throw better parties. And if you're throwing, if you're asking yourself, do I throw bad parties? If you have to ask yourself that question, it's something to think about. Um, but I'm not, I'm not always just talking about actual physical parties. What I'm talking about is when you and I, we become the kind of people that bring the party wherever we show up. Do you know what I mean? The kind of people, when we leave a party, the other people are sad to see us go. They go, oh. They go, the little thing, they go, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, they say, I, I really like being around her. There's something about her life that is so attractive. She has struggles and problems just like the rest of us, but there's something in her that is joyful. It celebrates. And at Pax City, this church, our vision is that we would become the kind of people who would do that. We would bring the party wherever we show up, whether the party is three people or 300 people. We are the brand. We are the Jesus brand that lives the life of joy because of what God has done and everything I just explained over the last 40 minutes. And at Pack City Church, we want to be the kind of people who whoop it up. We want to be the kind of people who laugh. Like we can laugh in this place. We want to be the kind of people that tell jokes, good jokes and bad jokes. You know, we just tell jokes. We want to be the kind of people who make food and host really great times in our homes. And we want to throw interesting parties for our friends and our neighbors. And we just want to be those kinds of people. We want to be people who deeply care uh, for the people around us because we've seen amazing things, because we are participating in an amazing work, and because we have been loved by an amazing God. And that, my friends... That is a good life. (laughs) Why don't we all stand? Why don't we all stand?